It's been a week. Has anybody else had a week? Raise your hand. Ah, yeah, because I walked in and there's been a lot of people with a lot of stuff. I came in today and it was like a flood of just like pain and hurt and uh, sorrow and just a lot going on. And I had one of those weeks, but it was just on the busy side. I, I generally, if, if you don't know this about me, I generally carry about 260 unread text messages on my phone at all times. It's a thing for me. I don't know why, but it happens to me that just a lot of people like to text me. If I did not text you back, I apologize. It's also a Seahawks 10 a.m. game and fantasy football, so I'm going to go to my phone. It's probably at like 390 right now, all right? There's a lot going on. And so I did not start on my sermon. It's funny that you would say the preparation that Kurt had for this sermon. I did not start on this sermon till Thursday, okay? This is just truth-telling Sunday, all right? I did not start till Thursday. And so Thursday, I'm like, I'm settling down. I'm going to get into my writing groove. And the Lord was like, I actually want you to drive. I want you to go on a drive. And I'm like, what is going on? Do you ever have that where you have a to-do list that is longer than you can get to? And the Lord's like, I actually need to spend time with you. Do you ever feel that? Because that's like a constant battle for me. And so I drove. I dropped Jer off at my oldest at school and I drove through the city. And when you drive through the city, I about 20 or 30 minutes of driving through the city, you see nice houses, you see houses that are struggling. I saw teachers going into schools. I saw students going into schools. I drove past two hospitals where you see people going into emergency rooms and coming out of emergency rooms. I saw businesses, some that were thriving, some that were boarded up. I saw homeless encampments. I saw people pushing uh, carts through the middle of the, sit the street. And my heart began to break. And the Lord was saying, I need your heart to break before you preach. Do you, do you understand the importance of that? I need your heart to break before, the, before I do. Because I settled down in downtown Tacoma in a little coffee shop. And I decided to write this. And as you're sitting there, if you're in the heart of a city, like we're in the heart of a city, you're going to see brokenness. And the Lord said, do you believe that the gospel is power enough to change any of these people's lives? I'm faced with that question, and you're faced with that question as well, because there can be a numbness that begins to take root in us, all right? We can become numb. We can become uh, desensitized to the things that we're seeing. And what's interesting is I'm fascinated by the early church. If I were to write a doctoral paper, which is never going to happen, just FYI, but I would, it would be all about the start of the movement of the Christian church, because with a billion times less content than we have, right? They were on mission and they were advancing the gospel, living completely like this through persecution and pain and sorrow just like we do. They believed that the gospel was power enough to for anyone's life. And the question for us is, do we believe that as well, okay? Because for me, I get discouraged and I get stressed. And when I get discouraged and I get stressed, I begin to notice that I lose my identity in Christ. Do you feel that? Like you were so deeply rooted. We should be so deeply rooted in Christ. But when we get discouraged and we get stressed, we begin to lose the, the belief that there is power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know many of you walked in. 
I know many of you have broken relationships right now that you are dealing with. I know that about you. I know some of you are waiting to hear about a job. I know that some of you have people in the hospital. I know some of us have lost loved ones in the last couple months. And there's pain and sorrow. And the Lord's saying, do you still believe the power of the gospel? No matter what situation. Because what's interesting is that the early church, they found their identity in Christ. And I also find it interesting that they did some biblical saturation, all right? And so we are going for it. I was really insecure about this message because when I was in that coffee shop in downtown Tacoma, the Lord said, I want you to read the whole passion narrative. There's going to be a lot of reading. If you know me, I get my tongue tied a lot. So I'm going to struggle through this, all right? But he said, I want you to read the whole narrative. We all have access to the Bible that they would have been so jealous of in the early church, right? They, but they have the founding documents and they have the story of Jesus' death and resurrection and they immerse themselves in that story. We have a bunch of Christian content and we listen to it and that's fine, but we don't immerse ourselves, immerse ourselves in the power of of the gospel. So we are going to read it out loud. Who's with me? All right. You ready? Because I believe that a big part of Christian formation in the early church was the immersion of the story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. And we assume that everyone's reading it, but, but they're not. Let's just be honest. So what I want to say this, that for us in this contemporary setting, in this modern world that we live in, we have to root ourselves just like the early church in the story of the passion of Jesus. Now, one of the things I want to say is that I, I, I was, every Saturday when we're eating, the, we sit around and Meg uh, and I talk about what I'm going to be preaching on with the boys. And so my two boys are 11 and 9, and they said, oh, you're basically, literally, they said, you're giving an Easter story. And I said, I really am giving an Easter sermon. Like, it's hard to write two East, Easter ser- sermons in a row, right? But what's really important here is I was thinking about that. Oftentimes, we only go deep into the Easter story once a year. And we are to be immersed because in this, we find our identity. Okay? And so we're going to read the whole thing. So hang in there with me. If you are new here, we have been through this series in Mark. We have been walking through the book of Mark in the thing called, in a sermon series called The Way of Jesus. And so we're going to look at this big narrative and we're going to see how we as Jesus followers should look more like Jesus because you're going to see that as he walks through this narrative, he's going to do some things and we can learn some things through this narrative. In the face of the most painful death a human could face, in the middle of fear and betrayal and pain, Jesus is operating as fully human and fully God at the same time, all right? So in the midst, he is fully human, and he is experiencing the pain and sorrow of the human condition. And he responds, because of that pain and sorrow, he responds a couple ways, and we can learn from him on how we are to respond as well. Because we see first that the first challenge that Jesus is going to face is that he has to surrender his will to what is about to happen. Mark 14, 32-42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take the cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Then he returned with his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus knows what is about to go down. And it's clear in the narrative that he's struggling with what is about to happen. And he goes to a familiar place. This would have been a place that him and his disciples would have gone to. It's on the Mount of Olives, and it's a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane, this means oil press, okay? This literally means oil press. And he's literally, in all his emotions and sorrows, and all the feels that a human can have. Again, he's operating in his human condition. He has to lay down his will and consecrate himself to the Father's will. Jesus himself had to surrender his will. Jesus is in an emotional, a, a de, an intense emotional state, and the sorrow that he's feeling in that moment is so extreme that it's described here as it's life-threatening. He's feeling so much pain and so much sorrow in this moment that his soul, all of his inner life, is overwhelmed with sorrow. And Jesus, in his human nature, he needs to pray. And this is an intensity that none of us will ever feel what he is, is about to experience. You have to understand, he's not dreading the physical pain, really. I mean, he is. It's going to be terrible, right? But he has to align his will because he knows the torment that he is about to take, bearing your sin and bearing my sin on the cross. Becoming a ransom for all of us is a torment that we cannot imagine. All of our sin, all the stuff that we carry on, that Jesus died on for, that he suffered our punishment, right? Jesus is dreading the moment where he is taking on the sins of the world. And he doesn't want it to happen. Can you blame him, right? This is, this is the thing. It's indescribable the weight and the pain of the moment that he is about to experience. We cannot lose that as a Christian community, okay? So Jesus needs time in the garden. And how does he surrender his will? Because we can take some notes. First, he, there's a model to it. He separates himself. He moves apart. And he comes to the Father in humility. He prostrates himself on the ground. And he prays aloud with great emotion. And he lifts up his needs. And the contents there as well. He's like, Father, Abba. He is determining whose authority is really at play here. Does that make sense? Like all of us have to be in a place where we are taking our will and surrendering it. And we do that by saying, God, you are in authority. You are the father. You are the one who determines all of my steps. We too have to surrender our will. 
and he's acknowledging authority and he makes a straightforward address. He's like, if it's possible for this hour to pass, can you make it happen? How many times have we prayed that? How many times have we prayed that? But he doesn't doubt. He's instead, in all of his humanness, he's like, I'm going to align myself around your will. He knows that God can do everything. Now, when he surrenders his will and he aligns his will to the Father, he now has clear vision and he has the courage that he needs to stand firm in his identity. Does that make sense? For us to stand into our identity, like Jesus is going to have to stand firm in his identity, he has to first surrender his will to the Father. Many of us are not walking in our identity because we have not surrendered our will to the will of the Father. We are still trying to live our lives and have a little bit of Christ on the side. Is it getting hot in here? Me too. This whole week was a continual, I'm surrendering my will to the Father's will because I need to walk in my identity because if not, I'm going to be completely a mess, all right? Mark 14, just keep going. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with him. With him was a crowd, of ar- a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. The elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and said and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. 
While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant's girls on the high priest came by. Then they saw Peter warming himself and looked closely at them. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she, again, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said, Peter, said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster, the rooster crowed the second time Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crowed twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priests came with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. The first thing we see is that he stands firm in the midst of betrayal. They're, they're in the garden, they rival Judas, and we see this. This is a man that he walked with. You have to understand the disciples. We say discipleship. It means you come to a discipleship class or you come here once a week. He's walking with him 24-7, 365. This is a man that he has walked alongside. He's literally betrays him to his face. Judas comes to him and kisses him. The power of kiss is amazing. It's a token of respect. It's how we would greet a close friend. You know, many, many people as they came in, the back in the day, you would kiss them on the cheek. We're not doing that here at Redeem, all right? A nice fist bump is fine for me. A handshake, maybe a hug. This is in your face. And this is, what the, this is what a disciple would have done to the rabbi. This is how he would have greeted him as a sign of respect and as a sign of putting him above himself, all right? And he's betrayed. And how does Jesus respond? He responds knowing his identity. He's like, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't say, don't arrest me. He's like, what are you guys doing? You know who I am and I know who I am. You, this was planned. This was going to happen. Matter of fact, it's amazing that it took this long. He's been teaching this in the temple. They have been planning this. And then he stands firm in the midst of lies and accusations. Jesus first faces the religious leaders. And, and this one isn't a trial as much as just throwing accusations at him. And Jesus is so sure of his identity because he's already surrendered it, his, it to his will to God that he stands stoic in silence. He says this, Jesus answers simply and directly and truthfully. He says, I am multiple times. He's handed over to Pilate and the civil authorities. We're going to see that Pilate moves back and forth between the religious leaders and the crowd and to see what they want. And here Jesus stands silently in the midst of the whirlwind. He has prepared himself in the garden. He has prayed and he had to surrender his will so that he could do this. Does that make sense? Many of us want to step into our identity, but we're not doing the preparation. Does that 
Does that make sense? I, I really want to make sure that we, we nail this down. This is vitally important. If Jesus, who was God, but also human, had to surrender his will for him to be able to walk into his identity, we do too. Does that make sense? We cannot just keep operating how we want to operate without the preparation that we need to operate in our identity. Because he also stands firm in the midst of denial from a person he deeply loved. Peter is abandoning him. A matter of fact, the whole thing is going to start abandoning him. If you've ever felt a betrayal, if you've ever felt abandonment, if you've ever felt pain and sorrow, it fails in comparison to what he's experiencing. Judas betrays him and Peter and denies him. And the innocent Jesus remains silent and he remains in his identity the whole time. We see with these three stories, because he surrenders his will to the Father and because he stands firm in his identity, he's able to fulfill his mission. Without the first two, it would have been very, very hard to fulfill the mission. Many of you have a calling on your life. Many of you have something that you are supposed to do, but, it's not, but we haven't surrendered our will fully. We haven't walked in our identity. And so we're really wondering why things aren't actually moving forward. Mark 15. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the, the people requested, a man called Barabbas who was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Bad dudes. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd and to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away with the, in, into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to, call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff. They spit on him, falling on their knees. They took, paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put, on his, clo put his clothes on him. Then they laid him on, out to cross, crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on the way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So 
you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama, shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near him heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last breath. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And there, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw him, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger and, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him cared, and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him in Jerusalem were also there. It's a lot. We have to let it sit. Think about everything that Jesus went through. He has to fulfill the mission in the most horrific way. He was flogged, handed over. The crowds were yelling at him. He was mocked. He had a crown of thorns put on. He had, he had nails go through his hands and his feet. You know, we don't really understand the cross. We don't. In a matter of way, some ways we've kind of neutralized it. Like, how many people have talked about how beautiful this cross is? And my, friend, my friend made it. it it's gorgeous. It's, it's wonderful. This is not what it would have looked like. We wear it around our neck. Many of them have a bunch of diamonds or gold or whatever. And we, we you wear it as a symbol. The early church would have understood this. This is to die the most horrific way that you can die. You die from suffocation many times for days. Hanging there. Jesus had to prepare himself. He had to align his will with the Father's will because he had to have the identity of who he was to go through the mission that saved you and me. Because he was willing to take on the most painful death that you could ever imagine. The mission was fulfilled, Mark 15. It was pre preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So in, as evening approached, Joseph of, of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he had learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body of Joseph. So Joseph brought, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in the tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw what he, where he was laid. 
When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the tomb, <clears throat> the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they, they, they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the, the Nazarene, Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, the early church would have read this, would have told this story over and over and over again. To the early church, becoming a follower of the way was not some self help resource, it was not to make your families better. It was not to bring you financial freedom. It was not to solve this problem or that problem or this thing or that thing. Many of the things that we look for for church, all right? It's just, it wasn't. It wasn't a self-help thing. It was an identity that came their way freely through, through grace and hope, okay? You know, there's a, a, a prominent pastor that passed away. His name's Tim Keller. And I was listening to a podcast right before he passed away. And he was talking about the, the, the identity crisis that all of us face. This is a thing that we all face, okay? There's three kind of things that he talked about. My grandparents and great-grandparents' generation, that for them, identity that was the most important thing was that they were a good human. Being the best human that they could be was the identity that drove them, okay? We then moved into my generation where things get a little funky, my generation, we were faced with this. Who am I, right? What is the best version of Kurt that I could become? I was to find myself. There was this perfect Kurt that we had to find. And so I would be on the journey where I did all kinds of crazy stuff to find myself. We're entering into a new generation. And this next generation, they're actually told that you can create yourself. That it's not about being a good person. And it's not about finding the real stuff. It's actually unlimited choice. That you can design whatever you want to be. Now the problem with that is unlimited choice actually leads to greater depression, anxiety, all, blah, 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 blah. The early church would not have said, I need to just be a good person. The early church would not have said, I need to find myself. The early church would not have said, I need to create myself. They would have declared that they are in Jesus. The world tells you that you can be anything. It is a lie. Your true identity is in Christ. It doesn't matter which one of those line of thoughts you take. It's all wrong. We're in Christ. Jesus is calling you to be in him. 
This story is a real story. I read the whole thing because we immerse ourselves in it. Because if not, we begin to take other stories to identify ourselves. And that's not what was meant to happen. I love baptism. I got to baptize Candace uh, last week, which is amazing. When you were baptized, you stood there and you declared that you surrender your will to the Father and that you now have a new identity. Those were the two things that you do, right? You take somebody, you dump them in the water, and you say that you are, you are buried with Christ in death, and now you are raised to new life in Christ. You took a new identity by surrendering your will. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is saying, you are now justified by faith. Here is how you now view your life. You are accepted and because of that, you now have the motivation you need to surrender it all to God. You simply live for the person who loved you. In the garden, Jesus is surrendering himself. He's walking into his identity. He goes to fulfill a mission. He did it because he loves you. You are worth it to him. Someone needs to hear that. He gave himself for you. And this, in Galatians, this is a surrendering your will statement. You need to live your life now in line with the truth of the story that we just read. All truth about you is true because Jesus died on the cross. You cannot make yourself right. You are righteous because he fulfilled the mission. We are now followers of the way because he fulfilled the mission. Now that Christ's life is in you, you are in Christ. You are now free from condemnation. He did it for a reason. You are now in Christ. Jesus paid the debt. So with that truth, it's not you who lives. You and me are sinners. We are. But in Christ, we're righteous. You live your life. You make your choices. You go through your day-to-day with who you are in faith, by, by faith in Jesus. Because of this story, there is a new inner life dynamic that takes place. In Christ, we get to repent from our sins in joy. Did you hear that? In Christ, we repent of our sins in joy. We don't hang on to things. We release it. In Christ, we face our fears, all the stuff that you're avoiding, all the pain and sorrow that you're avoiding, all the things that need to happen to move things along. You now, in Christ, face that fear with complete confidence. In Christ, you become followers of his way. Christ's death and resurrection means everything to you. I read this story because it, <clears throat> this way, where you read everything 
because it should mean everything to you. Every decision, every problem, every sorrow and pain, we now think about it through the lens of Jesus surrendering his will, walking into his identity, and fulfilling the mission for you and me. We bring our whole lives now into alignment because of the gospel. There's nothing else. We have to live our lives completely surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that will fulfill you. There's nothing else that will get you through all the tough moments than understanding that he died for you and for me. Let's stand up. I'm going to be the first to raise my hand, but everyone just bow your hands, Ed. There's anybody here that's, um, and I don't do this very much, but if there's anybody here who is having a hard time surrendering their will right now to the Father's will, it's just this constant battle, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. There's a few. A few. Heavenly Father, I pray for this group in particular. Thank you, Lord, for what you did on the cross. Lord, I pray for each person that has their hand raised that they would know that it is enough. That they can surrender everything. All the addiction, all the pain and sorrow, all the hurt, all the betrayal, all the deception, all of it. They surrender their will now to the Father's will. Just come in agreement with that. Surrender. So Heavenly Father, I pray that that would be I pray, Lord, that they would be able to walk in their identity by constantly surrendering your will. So just repeat after me if that's you. Heavenly Father, I surrender my will to your will. Lord, I place you in the place of authority. I repent any ways that I took things or did things that were not of your will, I surrender myself. And now I walk in the freedom of forgiveness and I replace all, all the stuff with your love and your forgiveness. Heavenly Father, I want all of, all of us desire to walk in the new identity that you gave us. We can't carry our, these burdens and these pains and these sorrows by ourselves. So Lord, we surrender our will to you. We walk in our identity. Lord, so that we can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that needs it so much, that is in so much pain and discouragement and sorrow. So Lord, we walk in trust today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.